This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis, in for Ryan Warner. Freedom is a new concept for Jeff Johnson of Denver. I was released uh, November 2nd, 2018. That's released from prison after nearly 25 years behind bars. Johnson was 17 when he was arrested, later convicted of murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He's 42 now. He says when he was found guilty in 1995, his teenage mind couldn't quite grasp what was happening. I don't even think I was realizing, like, the magnitude of the issues that I was facing. Because right after my trial, after they had found me guilty, I remember asking my lawyer, well, what do you think the sentence is going to be? And he, and he kind of, like, smirked at me, and he's like, life without parole is the only sentence you can get. And I was like, well, what, you know, what does that mean? And he's like, well, basically, till you die. And in my head, I'm like, till I die. But Johnson was the beneficiary of a growing body of research that's found that juveniles don't always understand the consequences of their actions and that the juvenile brain isn't fully developed. The Supreme Court ruled a few years ago that sentences of life without parole for juveniles is cruel and unusual punishment. You know, I understand being angry. I understand being hard on crime. I I get it. I totally get it. But to sentence kids to life ain't the answer. So Johnson and others like him across the country are being released early, and they're facing adult life outside of prison for the first time. This is Jeff Johnson's story. I met Jeff Johnson recently at his new apartment in Denver. Until now, he's never paid rent or other bills. Two puppies greeted me at the door, and the dryer and dishwasher were going. And there was a smell of clean everywhere. Johnson and I sat down on his black leather couch, and he told me about being a kid. I struggled, like I think, a little bit harder in, in school than others. We found out like I was dyslexic a little later on. Like I was in special ed courses since, I think, second or third grade. When I first started high school, I was predominantly like ditching classes, smoking weed, doing things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. Johnson had had a few run-ins with police. He says he'd never been violent. You know, I, yes, I smoked weed. Yes, I was a class clown. But that was about the extent of it. Johnson says he and his father didn't get along. Growing up, I, I think my dad and my relationship was a little bit poor. Um, I think he'll even tell you he wasn't the dad that he probably should have been and uh, could have been. And, and obviously the man he is today, is it, I don't believe he was then or he didn't know that he was. Um, But nowadays, we have a tremendous relationship. Eventually, Johnson ended up in a group foster home. That's where the murder comes in. Johnson was hanging out with a guy from the home he didn't know well. They ended up in a parking garage in Aurora. The guy said he needed money and wanted to steal a car. He singled out a Jaguar in the lot. There's still some dispute about what happened next, but evidence backs up Johnson's account that he witnessed the murder and didn't join in the violence. I seen like... You know, the victim going, like, towards the car. And then, you know, I seen them start, like, what I thought were wrestling. And uh, my co-defendant had turned, you know, the victim, uh, Mr. Leonard Deli, against, like, this concrete pillar. And when he did, I realized, like, the whole front of his shirt was just, like, saturated in blood. The victim, John Leonardelli, was a 55-year-old insurance broker. He died later from his injuries. You know, I, I didn't grow up uh, in violence and all that, um... So being witness to something like this was obviously something just extremely far away from my mind. You know, for (laughs) like I was seeing it, but 
and it was all moving and everything was happening however just mentally like it was just processing so slow like I don't even know how to explain it I've never had any kind of experience like that since then mentally I remember then Mr. Leonard Deli like sat down against that uh, pillar a guy had come in and uh, he's like what's going on in here I said hey this guy needs help and I actually started walking towards this guy and I was like I wanted to leave with him and then he looked he seen what was going on he took off running and obviously I realized like he was probably like what you know in fear for his life because he doesn't know what was happening. Johnson and the other guy fled the scene. They were later arrested. Johnson remembers waiting in the Arapahoe County Jail in a pod with other juveniles like him who were charged as adults. And I remember in this pod like I, I always heard the rumor that you basically had to be facing 60 years or more to be in this pod. And I think it showed, like, because you start seeing guys where, like, they just didn't care about anything. I just seen a lot of hopelessness in there to where these kids that are already feeling like they're in a hopeless situation, we just, it was just like all those feelings were just compounded by our, our environment that they had us living in. Johnson was eventually convicted of felony murder. That is a murder that happens while another crime is being committed. The sentence was life without the possibility of parole. It was the 1990s. Violent crime was up, and the U.S. and the states reacted with long sentences. In that juvenile pod, Johnson was lucky. He was tall, and he says that kept other kids from bothering him. But he wasn't so lucky once he was convicted as an adult and transferred to the jail's adult section. And I remember they put me in this in a cell with like two really big guys, and I was on a like a blue boat. They had like this little blue plastic boat that you push into your cell, and and you throw a mat on it, and that's your bed. Because there was overcrowding. Yeah, because of, of the overcrowding. And I remember uh, they ended up saying, "Well, we're going to toughen you up for prison," and, and did what was called bodies, which is basically where like they beat you up, but they don't hit you in the face. And really it's so, I guess the cops don't see that this is what's happening. But, I mean, the majority of us juveniles, I know, went through this same kind of, I mean, to some degree it was kind of like torturous because you couldn't go talk to nobody. And I remember just kept getting beat up, beat up all the time. Things didn't get better when Johnson was later transferred to a prison in Ordway, Colorado. He says he narrowly escaped getting raped. He tried to kill himself with a razor. He got addicted to heroin. He spent six and a half years in solitary confinement. Over time, though, he started seeing things differently. Part of it was something his grandmother told him when he talked to her on the phone from prison. And I was just so depressed. And she was like, what's wrong? And I was like, Grandma, I was like, you know, I'm going to die in prison for a murder I didn't commit. She was like, you know, everybody got a life sentence. We're just going to do it in different places. So when, you know, when she came with, with that kind of wisdom, you know, and it took it took a little while before it resonated in me, like how profound it was. And I really kind of realized, you know what, you're right. I'm not going to allow whether I live on the streets or whether I live in prison to, to define who I am, nor will it define how, if I'm going to have a good or bad life. So I just realized, like, I'm going to change the prison. I'm, I'm just going to change it. It was a pretty lofty goal, but Johnson got involved in what was called the Shape Up Program. That's where young people in trouble with the law could come to visit prison and talk to inmates. Churches, schools, uh, group homes, 
anywhere where at-risk youth that would be involved. And sometimes it wasn't even at-risk youth. Sometimes we were just getting like the straight-A students who just wanted to come and see what it was about. For me personally, I believe that every kid should go in there and see what it's about. The idea was to show kids that prison isn't where they wanted to be. Johnson ended up running the program. He got involved with a restorative justice program, too. Eventually, the Supreme Court ruled that life without parole for juveniles was unconstitutional, and inmates like Johnson, with good behavior in prison, started the process of getting resentenced. Johnson said he had no illusions about what it would be like to live in the outside world. Really, all I really ever had to look at how the world was on the streets was through TV or, you know, through staff members, even a lot of staff members in there that, to me, I was like, damn, you guys are just miserable. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like you got your freedom. You're telling me you got this nice house. You got this and then you got this. But yet you're miserable. Talking to you every day, all you do is you sit here and complain to me about how negative your life is. And you're just like, how can it be that bad? On November 2nd, When Johnson was released, he was free for the first time since he'd been 17 years old. And this is where the story takes on another twist. While in prison, working on that restorative justice program, Jeff Johnson met a woman, a counselor, who was taking part in the program. They started talking by phone and fell in love. When Johnson was released, they got married. The situation is so unique and there's really not, you know, I wish we could go to the library and just get a book on how to do this. But I think that we're embarking, we're trailblazing. Jenny, she goes by Jenny Johnson now, joined us in the couple's living room to share her thoughts. She works at a rehab center doing case management. She's also working on her addictions counselor license and mental health license. The two knew marriage was a gamble. I'm glad that I have never been married because I don't know if I would have jumped into it so fast. No, that's, <laughs> I'm joking. But, so I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's doing really good. Yes, really, really good. But no, truly, it, it was a risk. It was a huge risk for us to – because really when we got together, there still was no definite that he was coming home. So that to have that hanging over the beginning of a relationship is is tough. Right now, Jenny Johnson is the sole breadwinner, while Jeff Johnson looks for a job. He's been talking to a lot of people, figuring out next steps. For now, he's taking care of the apartment and the puppies. I think he's a good Mr. Dad. You know, the laundry's always done. The dishes are done when I get home. Jeff Johnson's biggest challenge is that he wants to get going, ideally to work with young people to keep them out of the prison system. It's just so frustrating for him because he was so busy in prison. He was a leader helping others. It's different now. I just feel like I'm not being effective. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm not being utilized. And I I think that's one of the biggest struggles I've had, huh? Wouldn't you say so? Mm -hmm. Just like feeling like kind of like I don't belong. I don't have, I don't really have a lot of purpose and meaning out here yet. I just haven't figured out how to really create it. Johnson says he also feels a responsibility to his victim. You know, he lost his life by this situation. My story is his life. So if I come out here and I'm not out here making the impact that I'm able to make and and I'm able to create, like that to me, that would be disrespecting his legacy. Johnson says that sense of uselessness has at times led to a feeling of panic. 
you know, I, I've had like three little anxiety attacks, like where I've had to go like walk around and we have a park right across the street and, you know, we've, uh, we've, Jenny's come and we've walked around the building. We, one time we've had to go over to the park and go run. One time I just woke up in the middle of, and I guess when I was sleeping, just sat up and just started screaming. My job, I think, is to give him a dose of reality. And I think that I reality check him a lot of the time because I think that he's in such a rush to just be this huge impact on the world. And I think that he forgets that there's a lot of value in the transition for him. And I think that out here is a completely different ball game than in there. And it's important for him to not put too much pressure on himself to have to do all of these things and be this person. I think coming out here and just being a good person is making an impact. At some point, Jeff and Jenny Johnson say they want to devote themselves to helping others. For now, Jeff Johnson's trying to get used to a world that's very different from the one he left in 1994. Out here, it's just everything so fast-paced. Johnson says he's baffled by the changes that have come from technology. There's not a whole lot of human interaction out here no more. You know, people, like, to me, it's like I've had conversations where we're computer-type talking, and it's like, just call me. You know what I mean? This this is so weird. Why are you Why are you texting me? Why not just call me? You know what I mean? We can get through the whole conversation a whole lot quicker than my little thumb will push these little buttons. Johnson says he is trying to accept the modern world and be patient. As for Jenny, she says she sometimes struggles with the idea that her husband's missed out on so much. I feel bad for him going into prison at 17 and then coming out and being a grown man. And it was kind of my, when we first got together, like, I don't want to do that to you. I don't want to hold you down. I want you to come home and be a 17, 18, 21-year-old, 29-year-old, like go through all of these stages of life that I got to go through. So 17 to all of a sudden 42, it's a huge jump. The Johnsons are getting used to their new life together. They laugh a lot. They spent the holidays with their family. They've gone skating together, hung out with friends. Jeff Johnson's testified at the state legislature about criminal justice reform. He's determined to make change. As for future challenges, he and Jenny expect those too. A grandson of Jeff Johnson's victim, John Leonardelli, spoke at Johnson's resentencing and said he supported Johnson's release. Music from this story is by Blue Dot Sessions. When the Academy Awards are held next month in Hollywood, the actors, directors, and filmmakers will be joined by a retired Colorado Springs police detective. Ron Stallworth plans to be in the audience. That's because the movie, based on his book, Black Klansman, has just been nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture. I expected to get at least four nominations. The fact that it's gotten six is uh, beyond my wife and my uh, wildest imagination. We're very thrilled. That's Stallworth reacting to news of the Oscar nominations. It was an unbelievable feeling to realize that this story 
that I lived based on the book that I wrote had garnered uh, recognition from the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science. He says the acknowledgement has a bigger meaning to him on a personal level. If anything, this movie feels like a validation for everything I went through, the battles I went through with certain individuals um, to get this investigation done for those people who tried to uh, upend my career for their own self-serving interests. They know who they are. This just, in some ways, it seems like a validation of everything. Stallworth, who's black, infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s. He spoke with Ryan Warner about the investigation when the movie was first released. One day you were in the office as an undercover cop reading the newspaper, looking for something that might spark an investigation, and you found an ad for the Klan with a P.O. box and a phone number, and you wrote. What, what happened? Well, I wrote a note to uh, the P.O. box uh, using the language that they use, identifying myself as a uh, fellow uh, like-minded white supremacist. Told them I was interested in, in the Klan, wanted to uh, find out some more information about them. And I gave them the undercover phone line that we used that back then was untraceable and mailed it off. I wonder if the, the language came easily to you. In other words, was it difficult to try to fake that supremacist tone? When you've been called a n- like I had been over three times in my life and gotten in fights and kicked out of school for, it's not hard to talk like one of them. And I was a, I was an experienced undercover investigator. When you work undercover, you're basically acting, and you have to put on a performance that is convincing to the target. And it wasn't hard at all. What were the results of having sent that letter? Uh, about a week or two later, I get a phone call from a gentleman that identified himself as uh, the local organizer that he had gotten my note, that I had some uh, good ideas, and he wanted to know why I wanted to join the Klan. I told him that uh, I hated uh, and anybody else who isn't pure Aryan white like I am, and I want to do something to stop the abuse of the white race. His response was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? And that's when I said to myself, oh, hell, what am I going to do now? And I quickly uh, recovered and told him that I couldn't meet him right away, but I could in a week. We settled on a location down in Security, Colorado, and uh, the investigation was off and running. Security, Colorado, just outside of Colorado Springs. And my understanding is that you gave him a physical description, uh, obviously not of yourself, but of one of your fellow cops. Actually, I gave him a description of myself because uh, Chuck, the... uh, White Ron Stallworth. Chuck is about my height, my weight, or was back then. Mm. And uh, I knew how he came to to work dressed. He was the one that I was uh, selecting to uh, play me in this con game. The only thing I didn't, only thing I didn't say was that I was black. Right. (laughs) What What were you interested in investigating specifically? What What did you think the law enforcement interest in this was? Well, it was obvious. The Klan is a subversive group that commits domestic acts of terrorism. The very fact that they were recruiting through a classified ad in the Colorado Springs newspaper was of interest to me as a police officer. You don't want subversive groups in your town, and if they are, you want to know as much about them as you can. So my job as an intelligence officer was to gather that intelligence. So let's talk about your real partner. You've only ever identified him as Chuck. and uh... Yes, 
While you build the relationships with these clan members on the phone, he's out there meeting and talking with them. How did you guys keep your stories straight? Chuck had to know everything that I had been saying on the phone so that he could walk in and pick up a conversation based on what I had said. I had to know everything that Chuck was saying in the uh, face-to-face environment with them. And uh, we played this uh, little uh, maneuver for about seven and a half months of the undercover phase of the investigation. Will you give me an example, Ron, of where this really worked, where the coordination paid off? Well, Chuck went to a meeting that I had set up. During this meeting, uh, the local organizer showed Chuck his gun collection, 13 guns, uh, showed Chuck uh, the fact that he carried a, I believe it was a 9mm or 45 on his person at all times to protect himself against blacks. But during the course of this meeting, uh, something was said to Chuck that I wanted to follow up on after the meeting ended. I waited for about an hour and then uh, placed a phone call back to the local organizer. And uh, he immediately said, what's wrong with your voice? You sound different. So when he said that, I coughed (coughs) and I said, uh, I have a sinus infection. He said, oh, I get those all the time. Did anything come of your investigation? Yeah, we prevented three cross burnings. We identified uh, two top security clearance personnel at uh, NORAD. As a result, the Pentagon was called, and those two were transferred. As I understood it, they were going to be on a transport heading to what I was told was, quote-unquote, the North Pole. We identified uh, a plot. It wasn't really a plot, but they discussed stealing automatic weapons from the armory at Fort Carson for the purpose of arming themselves for the racial holy war that they all believe is going to happen. This is some of the stuff that came out of this investigation. We achieved our goal. An excerpt of Ryan Warner's conversation with retired Colorado Springs detective Ron Stallworth. They talked about his undercover investigation infiltrating the KKK. The story is the basis of the movie Black Klansman, which was just nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of the CPR News podcast, Purplish. Our latest episode looks at how now former Governor John Hickenlooper managed to sign gun reform in a purple state. Let's examine our laws and make the changes needed to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. As Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of his toughest moments as Colorado's governor. What that says about him as a potential president. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis, in for Ryan Warner. Colorado Public Radio's airwaves will soon lose a familiar voice from a neighboring state, Howard Burkus. He's NPR's award-winning investigative reporter based in Salt Lake City, and he's retiring next week. During his nearly 40-year career, Burkus covered heartbreakingly human stories. He reported on everything from the Challenger explosion to rural America, and most recently, a joint project with Frontline, Coal's Deadly Dust. He joins us now to talk about that work and other moments from his long career. And Howard, thanks for chatting with us. Hi there. 
You've just wrapped up a years-long investigation into black lung disease and the U.S. government's failure to act to save lives. Your reporting focused on Appalachia, but here in the West, we have coal mines as well. Does this problem affect coal miners in our region, too? Um, You know, part of the way that we were able to detect this epidemic of disease in Appalachia is that we surveyed uh, black lung clinics, medical and legal clinics, uh, in Appalachia. And we also did across the country, including in the West and including in Colorado. We uh, haven't had much of a response from uh, the primary clinic in Colorado yet. I've tried for months. Um, I have heard of uh, cases, individual cases of disease in New Mexico. Um, but the biggest problem is that the clinics have not been tracking uh, progressive massive fibrosis, the advanced stage of black lung, separately. Um, they also tend not to have electronic records. So when I'm asking clinics to give me data, they have to look back through years of paper records, uh, which is a task that they may not have the time or resources to do. So I think it's still unknown how widespread this epidemic uh, it would be in the Western states. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the signatures, though, of this of this disease and this epidemic is the kind of rock that is cut with coal. And we know that in Appalachia, uh, the rock contains quartz. That quartz, uh, when you cut it, creates silica dust. And it's the silica dust that is the primary cause of what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I'm told that while there is some of that in the West, there's less of it. Two years ago, you reported a really touching story about an engineer who worked on the Challenger spacecraft. It's kind of hard to hear. Um, It's just so sad. He still blamed himself 30 years later for failing to prevent the explosion. He and another engineer warned NASA to delay the launch because of cold weather. And I think that was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. I don't know. But next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask him, why me? You picked a loser. Hmm. You had first interviewed him anonymously right after the disaster. How did you come to tell his story publicly so many decades later? Um, That was Bob Ebling, uh, who was uh, one of the Morton Thiokol engineers who tried to stop the Challenger launch the night before the the fatal launch. Um, I had kept in touch with Bob on and off over the years uh, just to see whether uh, how he was doing. And he wasn't doing very well, by the way. Um, This this continued to plague him throughout his life, um, this feeling of guilt that he should have done more. Uh, to to stop the Challenger launch. Uh, I kept in touch with him. Uh, I kept asking him, are you willing to go public? Are you ready to discuss this yet? And the answer was always no. Um, And that was fine. I understood that that this was very difficult for him. But on the 30th anniversary of the Challenger explosion in uh, 2016, I decided to give him a call again. Um, He was 89 years old at this point. And um, I was really surprised when he said, sure, come on up and talk to me. And that's when, um, that's when he told me what you, in, what he just said in that, in that portion of the interview that you played, he still, he still felt the guilt 30 years later. And we, um, we, we did a story and that particular piece of audio uh, prompted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of NPR listeners, including many former engineers and current engineers, uh, to write in to say, 
you know, you did all you could do. This is what engineers do is they prevent, they present data and it's up to the, the deciders, you know, the decision makers to make a decision based on that. It's not your fault that they made the wrong decision. Um, that didn't actually make him feel any better. Uh, he said, I'd never heard from Thiokol, the contractor who was responsible for the booster rocket that caused the Challenger explosion. And he said, I'd never heard from NASA. So I got in touch with a, a couple of the people who were actually involved in the decision to launch even after the engineers opposed it. And I got in touch with NASA. And that resulted in some people getting in touch with him, NASA issuing a statement praising him, and that made all the difference. Um, that helped him get past that guilt finally, uh, and he died three weeks later. What a story. Uh, along with that, I'm curious if there's another story or source that has really stuck with you throughout your career. Well, um, I, I haven't had a 30-year story arc like that one or or an individual so amazing you know, as Bob, but... I've, I, I have interviewed many people over the years who really stick with me. There was a uh, an injured worker uh, in Texas who I interviewed for a series of stories we were doing about uh, workers' compensation. I did this with uh, ProPublica, Michael Graybell at ProPublica. Mm. And um, one of the stories focused on um, how in uh, Texas – uh, you don't have to, a company doesn't have to sign up for workers' compensation and companies are able to get out of the obligation that they're supposed to have to take care of injured workers uh, through that means. And that uh, that was being uh, uh, adopted by other states. And I encountered this injured worker um, who had worked at a Macy's. Um, a, uh, he was working in the back room and a mannequin fell off a high shelf, hit him on the head. Mm. He suffered traumatic brain injury, ruined his life, basically. He allowed me to look at the um, – there was a settlement with, with Macy's um, uh, and then an arbitration um, agreement, an arbitration decision. Those things are supposed to be secret. He risked losing what he got in that arbitration, which really wasn't much. Um, by allowing us to look at it. And it really showed um, how his case was completely mishandled and how unfairly he was treated. And um, he really took a huge risk because he he had has no other resources, no other income. And um, uh, fortunately, he has not been punished for that. Um, and he struggled to talk to me because he has this traumatic brain injury. He has uh, memory loss and uh, sometimes he just can't put sentences together well. Uh, and we continue to keep in touch. And he follows my reporting about injured workers in particular. Um, and there are other people like that whose lives have been ruined by what's happened to them, but who are grateful for are providing, you know, some attention to what's happened to them. You've done several reports that have uncovered wrongdoing. What's been the most surprising outcome? Well, you know, you, you go into these stories hoping that uh, because you uncover truth or because you uncover facts or data uh, that have not been public before and that help bring a, a, a different perspective on what's going on or show that there was wrongdoing or poor decision making or failure to protect people. You hope that that's going to make some change, but, you know, you can't expect that because um, you never know what's going to happen. 
And I can't think of any one particular thing, but, um, well, there have been instances in which we've done stories and NPR listeners have stepped up to help people. Um, I did a story about a, uh, a, a soldier from uh, eastern Colorado who volunteered uh, for the Army, went off to Iraq, and on his second day, I believe it was, was hit by an IED, again, suffered a serious traumatic brain injury. He was older. He it wasn't connected to an Army base. And to get his medical care, he had to travel from his ranch in eastern Colorado to a hospital that was a couple of hours away. Great hardship for the family. Wife had to quit her job in order to to take care of this. Um, they were going to lose their ranch because they lost their income. Um, uh, the costs of, of the medical care, some of which they were bearing but shouldn't have been bearing. You know, it was a really drastic situation for them. After we did that story, a listener stepped up and paid off the family's mortgage, and they were able to uh, to keep the ranch. And other listeners stepped up and, and flooded the family with Christmas gifts for, for his two daughters. And um, so many uh, started sending in money that they had to set up a special bank account at the local bank. And um, I, this has happened more than once um, where listeners have stepped up after hearing about the difficulties people face. But but I think the overall theme that I come away with uh, from what I've learned about these investigations that I've done is that we should never underestimate the ability of of government agencies, of regulators, to not do their jobs, to miss what is apparent in their own data, uh, what is apparent to the people who they serve, what is apparent to reporters who are looking at it. Um, but they somehow miss, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, the fact that what they're doing is is not directly addressing the problem. This black lung investigation we just completed is a perfect example of that uh, because there's evidence going back decades of of the problem, of what the cause of the problem was. There were recommendations of what should be done about it, and the agencies didn't do those things. And And this was while the miners who are sick and dying today were working. Um, so I, I think, you know, we as uh, journalists have the ability to shine light where light isn't isn't shining. And I think that's a great public service. And it's something that we have to do because, you know, sometimes the people who are responsible for these things just don't see it. Well, we're talking to you at a time when CPR is really about to boost its investigation investigative reporting. We're creating an investigative unit for the first time. Many say the loss of newspapers have meant the loss of investigative reporting. How do you see the state of that kind of reporting in the country right now? This is the golden age of investigative reporting, not only in public radio, but but more broadly. We do see uh, uh, the, these terrible declines in uh, staffing at newspapers. There were a whole bunch of layoffs just yesterday um, in newspapers across the country and in, and in new services across the country. And uh, so that has been declining. But while that has been declining, and, and there still is good investigative reporting going on at many of these papers, but it's going to be more challenging for them to do it all the time. There's good investigative reporting done at many uh, television stations um, that have a, uh, local television stations that have a very strong commitment to that. But, um, but what has been happening is that there have been nonprofits 
that have uh, organized and and set up in various cities around the country. You have Rocky Mountain PBS in Denver, Mm -hmm. which has an investigative reporting unit that started as one of those nonprofits. Um, There are examples of that in uh, in Mississippi and um, in in Seattle and and in other and Boston and other places across the country in Kentucky. But at the same time, public radio stations are starting to see that if they want to make a difference in their communities, if they want to stand out as as a news service uh, that can provide something that is not being provided otherwise, and they have the unique opportunity to do that with powerful audio, the voices of the coal miners that we hear in our stories who are who are sick and dying, that is such a powerful testament that makes our our data really meaningful. Public radio stations can do that, and more and more of them are doing that. I hear almost every week about a public radio station either starting an investigative unit, asking about how to do it, and then one of the most valuable things is that they're partnering with these uh, with these nonprofit investigative reporting organizations, uh, ProPublica, the Center for Public Integrity, uh, Reveal, the Center for Investigative Reporting, and others, uh, so that um, I think the opportunity here is for communities to get more of this kind of really important reporting um, that we do not want to see decline uh, as as news organizations struggle. Just to wrap up, I want to have a little moment of Howard Berkus, This Is Your Life, because we have a reporter at CPR (laughs) who you've been quite a mentor to over the past year, our public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, who's joining us now in the studio. Benta, how did you first connect with Howard? Well, it happened last year, November of actually 2018 um, or 2017. I was working for KUNC and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, and I uncovered multiple sexual harassment allegations against a Democratic state lawmaker at the time, Steve Lebsock. And the story also examined the overall workplace culture at our state capitol. Howard retweeted the story and said, great reporting. And just a few days later, I wasn't sure whether I had enough to publish allegations against a different state lawmaker. And I remembered Howard's tweet and just sent him an email uh, asking him if he had a few minutes to answer a question. I thought maybe he would have come across this type of situation. And I remember our first phone call lasted about 45 minutes. (laughs) And Howard, in the last minute that we have, what did you think when Benta first reached out to you? And how did that mentorship evolve? Well, Benta is not the only reporter who's reached out to me. And um, I just think it's so important uh, f- when we're doing this kind of work, you have to talk to other people who are doing it too and who have had experience because you come across really difficult ethical questions. You come across situations you quite, you, you're not quite sure how to handle it. And it's just great to be able to talk to somebody else. So I was really pleased that Benta reached out and it was fun following that story um, and seeing how it evolved. I do this with other reporters. I I, I feel like, you know, it's something we should do. We should payback, basically. Um, I had mentors. I had people helping me throughout my career. Um, And I also just really admired the doggedness that Benta brought to that story and the sensitivity that she had to how what she was doing uh, would affect her her sources um, and the people who were, you know, who were accused in these stories. And um, and it's it's a very difficult thing, managing sources, dealing with sources, there's a balance that you have to achieve there. 
Um, and so, you know, by talking it through together, we helped sort of sort out some of those complex issues. And I, I think it's really important for reporters to have the willingness to put aside their egos and have the willingness to sort of say, I need help. Maybe somebody can help me. And then I think it's important for reporters like me with some experience to be willing to do that. Howard Benta, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Howard Burkus is retiring next week after nearly 40 years. He's NPR's award-winning investigative correspondent based in Salt Lake City. What if you told the full truth to everyone in your life, even the truth that might hurt them? What would the consequences of that be? Those are the questions Edomar Moses had when he set out to write his play, The Whistleblower. Moses is a Tony Award-winning playwright, and the Denver Center presents the world premiere of his latest work next month. Edomar, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Was there something that happened in your life that made you think about these questions? Um Probably. But the, <laughs> but the moment that I uh, sort of had that flash of inspiration that made me want to write the play um, just came as an idea for a play. I was working on something else. And I suddenly had this moment um, where it struck me as simultaneously very funny and very tense, this idea of a person who um, just pulls the rug out from under every relationship or situation by sort of saying the things that you're not supposed to say that sort of lurk underneath every relationship. The protagonist in your new play is Eli. He's a screenwriter and gets an offer to make his own television series. That's something many screenwriters <laughs> dream about. But instead of celebrating <laughs> the accomplishment, Eli starts to question why he wanted it so badly in the first place. He has an awakening and decides he no longer wants to sugarcoat anything um, in his life. The play's blurb calls these hard truths. <laughs> What's an example of some of the ones he shares? Oh, um, well, uh, I don't want to spoil too much about the play, okay. but I can give I can give some examples. For instance... Um, you know, we might be in a romantic relationship with somebody, not because, uh, you know, they uh, we're completely simpatico with them and it, uh, the relationship creates a space of safety and trust in which we can be our most authentic self. Right. We might be with someone for other reasons because of status, because they're incredibly beautiful, because we think it tells us or the world something about ourselves to be with a particular partner for like external reasons that are actually in conflict with our with our internal self. Mm. And so, for instance, he's in one of those relationships and sort of goes home and, and blows it up. Uh, but that's scene two. The play continues to sort of spiral from there. <laughs> there are more examples. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Eli being selfish with all of this? Um, is it just that he's trying to unburden himself? Um, or can some good come of telling the whole truth? Uh, the answer to that question is yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of plays, uh, in I mean, a lot of pieces of writing, but plays in particular, because it's like a dialectical form, are built around questions, uh, either or questions to which the answer is both and neither. Um, like, to live, you know, burdened by tons of lies is obviously not a good thing. Right. But I don't think it's an unambiguous good either to simply, you know, tear all of those Band-Aids off with no warning instantly, right? So so I think what he's doing is... is um, and this gradually becomes 
uh, I think clear to the audience and maybe belatedly clear to him uh, is is a double edged sword, uh, and there is an element of of uh, of selfishness or thoughtlessness to it. it. It wouldn't, I think, be interesting to write a play about someone who figures out how to be right at the beginning and then is right for the rest of the play. Right. Um, so, uh, so yes, is is the answer to your question. What does the play say about our human nature? Uh, I think probably a few things that like thematically, um, I think we need a certain amount of um, illusions, ego preserving illusions, stability preserving illusions in order to function like microcosmically or macrocosmically, but that those things can become a kind of prison or obstacles. And I think it's really tricky to know to first of all, it's difficult sometimes to even see those things. And then once we do, it's tricky to know how to deal with it or, or how to or if and when. To dissolve it. I also think another thing the play is about is um, I think we have a, a, a romantic attachment to like the big gesture, the one big grand gesture that will fix everything. And sometimes the big gesture is necessary, but that has to go along with sort of the daily grind of like doing the little things. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's another thing the play is about is that is that you need both. You've written for TV quite a bit. You've been a staff writer on shows like Boardwalk Empire and Men of a Certain Age on Mm -hmm. TNT. How has your own experience uh, writing for television influenced this play? Um, Well, right. (laughs) In in the sense that the the opening scene is about someone pitching an idea for a TV show. I think, um, you know, it's not a play about Hollywood. It begins in L.A., but he starts leaving L.A. by the end of the first scene and kind of doesn't go back. So I think in the play, Hollywood, more than anything, is a metaphor for um, for this idea. It's a place of illusion. It's a place of, you know, presenting, you know, creating characters and telling stories in which all of the people doing that are sort of presenting themselves as characters. I think that... Um, there's so much money in film and television, certainly as opposed to theater. You reach such a wide audience. There's prestige attached to it. Um, and those sort of brass rings make it really easy to lose your way in terms of, is this what, it, well, it's so obvious I should do this because there's X, Y, and Z benefit, but you you might completely lose touch with why you wanted to be an artist in, in the first place. If someone says, change everything about this and we'll put this on the air, you have to decide, is what I wanted to express important or just getting a show on the air? Is that what's important? And you have more latitude as a playwright. Sure. The, tra- the trade-off for uh, for working in a medium that for which you're paid nothing and that almost nobody sees is, is, that, is that you can basically do whatever, do whatever you want. In, in, in theater, there's kind of no reason not to do exactly what you want. Yeah. The first staged reading of The Whistleblower was in Colorado. That was 2014 at the Perry Mansfield Performing Arts School and Camp in Steamboat for the New Works Festival. That's right. Now it's about to get its world premiere. Um, How has it evolved over the years? Um, That's a good question. The the initial impulse has remained the same, the the broad shape of it. But all of the details have changed. You know, that people often ask, like, is a play autobiographical or not, as though the answer is yes or no. Um, But usually the answer is um, somewhere in the middle. Like a a play can be emotionally or psychologically autobiographical, but, but all of the details of my life aren't relevant to this play. So in that early version in Steamboat Springs, there were a lot more things that were like really about me or my family or and then gradually as the, as the play developed more and more of those things um fell out and were replaced by fictional elements that seemed to carry the the right sort of dramatic weight or symbolism for the story that this play was telling 
Itamar, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. Tony Award-winning playwright Itamar Moses on his new work, The Whistleblower. It makes its world premiere next month in Denver. It's part of the Denver Center's New Play Summit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you.